Thank you very much and good morning everybody. So my name is Jonathan Weissman. I'm a full-time cybersecurity professional and part-time independent biosecurity researcher. I'm also a born-again Christian and everything I'm doing today is from the perspective as someone of conscience who serves Jesus Christ and believes that this matter regarding the COVID-19 vaccines is absolutely critical, urgent and of highest priority. My website is alltherisks.com. All my material is freely available there and at the side of the room I have free copies of all my material today. Today I will be speaking about COVID-19, the virus and the vaccines that are available. As you can see on the screen, a little bit of background that will help us in today's talk. On the left side we see the COVID-19 variant. We have four surface proteins that we can think about. Of particular note for us is the spike protein, the target antigen of the COVID-19 vaccines, and it has two subunits, S1 and S2, that we'll hear about today. On the right-hand side, you can see an image of the COVID-19 virus. On the surface of the virus, you see the spike proteins, the sticky out corona shapes. This is what attaches to human cells upon infection and it's thought that the ACE2 receptor which is in cells throughout the body is the principal means of viral attachment leading to viral entry and infection of cells. So what's the strategy of immunization? Is to elicit neutralizing anti-spike antibodies to apprehend the spike protein on the surface of the virus to prevent cellular infection. This is described in the literature that I quote from my risk assessment as an arms race. The reason is, this is the dynamic situation. There are two binding affinities here. There's the binding affinity of the neutralizing antibodies to try to stop the spike protein and stop it in its tracks. But there's also an affinity of the spike protein to the ACE2 receptor. And it's very important that we understand both of these two things. And that's what I'll be covering in today's talk. We have three COVID-19 vaccines currently deployed. Janssen is not currently in use, but it is authorized by the MHRA for temporary use. As you can see, all three of the vaccines we use express the full spike protein genetically. That means your cells are creating the spike protein itself, which is then going to elicit antibodies to target it. The idea here is that this makes sense and is going to help you later down the line when challenged with an actual COVID-19 infection. Pfizer and Moderna both use mRNA lipid nanoparticles, so we're going to focus a bit more on that. And the reason is because the Pfizer injection is the one that our young people are currently receiving in schools, so we're going to focus heavily on Pfizer. Today I'll be talking through a framework for risk-benefit analysis. Apparently this is what the likes of the JCVI and our chief medical officers and our government have been doing for us. So we're going to do it forensically today and relatively quickly. We're going to use ideas from cybersecurity, including third-party risk management, supply chain risk. We're going to apply the principle of zero trust. We're not going to believe anything until we can verify it for ourselves. We're going to be using principles from open source intelligence to finally make a decision in line with operational research. We're going to cover four areas today. Safety. Is the vaccine safe for human use? Efficacy. Does it work for its stated goals? Strategy. Does it make sense? When we look back in a year's time or two years time, will we say it was a good idea to expose our entire population to the same types of genetic spike protein based vaccines? And finally, ethics, especially from a Christian view. Is this thing even ethical? First up is safety. Here's the most recent yellow card scheme data and it's already two weeks out of date. 
1.271 million reported adverse reactions. But these are the only reactions here are short term. They've got to have happened relatively soon after vaccination. Secondly, they have to be observable. If damage is done immediately to the body and you can't observe it clinically, it won't be on this report. And thirdly, it has to be reported. When everyone's telling you that the COVID-19 vaccine is the greatest thing ever, do you really want to report it? Will your doctor really want to report it if they're telling you it's the greatest thing ever? So that number, what should it really be if every single reaction was reported? And we will see later evidence that these type of numbers are massively underrepresenting the scale of the problem. So first question is, for the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, how do they get that genetic code that tells the body to create a spike protein and get that into your cells, into the cytosol, which is the cytoplasm outside the nucleus? Well, here's how they do it. And people say it's a miracle, but I'll tell you how it works. It's not easy. You have to get your body to uptake it. It's called endisotosis. Your cells have to uptake it like they would with proteins or lipids. So that's the first problem. You've got to get the cells to trust it and to take it up. Second problem, once you're inside the cell, you have to avoid the endosomes, which will sweep it away like cellular waste. This is the problem known as endosomal escape. So how do they overcome these problems? Well, here's how they do it. Firstly, they use a novel lipid to create a positive charge in a cell. It's called a cationic lipid for Pfizer, an ionizable lipid for Moderna. But it's never been used before in, in, a, in a vaccine like this. There's an unresolved problem of toxicity as recently as April 2018, because it can, it can cause cellular death, that's toxic to your cells, and it can cause pro-inflammatory cascades. That's the first novel lipid, but there's a second one. Just to protect the positive charge, they stick a PEG, pegylated lipid, on it. Most people, or many people, have antibodies already to PEG. It's in other pharmaceutical products, it's in hair dyes. It can cause an anaphylactic reaction because your body will elicit that antibody response. And this is what we're giving people repeatedly. People haven't previously had an adverse reaction. You inject them with a pegylated lipid on a booster dose or the second vaccine. That could again elicit the anaphylactic reaction. Thirdly, in the literature it says there's an unknown fate of the other lipid components like DSPs, DSPC and cholesterol once inside the cells. Remember, this is experimental technology. We've never had an mRNA or a DNA vaccine deployed before, let alone at scale. And we've never had a coronavirus vaccine, and it normally takes 10 to 15 years to deploy a vaccine. These are just the, the first risks we're going to cover. Next, we're going to talk about how does the vaccine itself distribute once, once it's been injected. So we're always told, well, it's intramuscular injection, it will stay in the deltoid muscle, it will stay in the shoulder, and don't worry, it's just your shoulder. Well, here's four pieces of evidence I'm going to submit today. Number one. As far back as 2015, intramuscular injection of lipid nanoparticles on mice from the mRNA technology led to systemic spread of the lipid nanoparticles and widespread protein expression. And why is that a problem? Because anywhere where the body's cells uptake through endocytosis, the lipid nanoparticles, it creates the protein which elicits the antibody response. You're going to have, or you could have, a cytotoxic reaction to destroy the cell just like that immunological training you want to give the body to recognize this is like a virally infected cell. So that means cells throughout the body in places that aren't just in your shoulder could be affected in this way. Secondly, the, the data from the Japanese medical regulator, the PDMA, itself shows that the Pfizer injection itself distributes widely across the body. What the researchers, what they did in the study 
is they subbed out the spike protein, they stuck in luciferase. That's what gives fireflies their luminescent property, right? And what they found is 16% of the vaccine itself concentrated in the liver of the rats, 1% in the spleen, 0.1% in the ovaries of the female rats. So again, that's how widely it distributes. And it was also in the plasma as well. So it went through the lymphatic system, it went through the circulatory system as well. Thirdly, a study showed from the clinical of infectious diseases, detectable free circulating S1 subunit, which contains the receptor binding domain that can attach to the ACE2 receptor of the body, freely circulating in the majority of healthcare workers receiving the Moderna injection. And how can this happen? Well, what happens is when you create the spike protein, it, the, once it's created in the cells, it might, according to theory, it migrates to the edge of the cells. So now you can have it sticking out sometimes. But you have circulating protease enzymes that can cut the peptide bonds between S1 and S2. That's your S1 subunit now with that receptor binding domain that can freely circulate. So if this can get into the vaccine, into the, the bloodstream, then you can have this process happening repeatedly with the spike protein going around. And fourthly, this is absolutely shocking. A recent paper in the Journal of Immunology, LinkedIn repeatedly take down my posts on this. All I do is post the paper and they keep taking it down. Why do they keep taking it down? This is absolutely critical. That image you're seeing there is transmission electron microscopy. This is a peer-reviewed paper showing the spike protein in something called exosomes. So what are exosomes? Well, they can convey a message of health or disease. They can be therapeutic, they can be pathogenic. This expresses a spike protein. They found that from day 14 following the Pfizer dose, for four months before it decreased, it freely circulates in the bloodstream. Now, exosomes, it's known, can be exhaled through breath and expressed through bodily fluids. So this absolutely can explain the shedding adverse reactions. This exosome theory, I cite my risk assessment from Senef and Nye from May 2021, and they called it then. They said this could be exosomes. This shedding is in, the, 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 the monitoring for it is in Pfizer's clinical protocol. And if you go back a few years to the FDA's protocols on gene therapy, it's there as well. So we have every reason to believe, not only from the adverse reaction data, but from the molecular biology and going back to clinical trial protocols, that shedding is absolutely a real phenomenon. And now moving on to the spike protein pathologies. Here's just five, and there are so many more. Number one, blood vessels. Remember the ACE2 receptor. So the spike protein can get into the blood. It can bind to endothelial cells. It can downregulate critical endothelial junction proteins, and it can undermine the endothelial barrier, leading to thrombosis. What's that? Blood clots. Secondly, the blood itself. The spike protein can bind directly to ACE2 expressing platelet cells. That can enhance Platelet aggregation can contribute, again, to clotting events. Thirdly, the brain. It can degrade the spike protein, the blood-brain barrier integrity, which is what helps to modulate and protect the passing of material between the blood and the brain. And that can risk the delicate neural networks the other side. That could cause neurological problems and affect the brain. Fourthly, the toxicity, this is slightly more complicated. Because the spike protein can attach to ACE2, it can cause downregulation and a decrease in ACE2 expression. But why do we need ACE2? Well, ACE2 prevents a toxic overabundance of a peptide hormone called ANG2. It helps it to convert from ANG2 to ANG1 to 7. If you have too much ANG2, 
because you don't have enough ACE2, you can have an increase in blood pressure and it can cause hypertension and severe pulmonary and cardiovascular disease. Fifthly, and this is very worrying, recent computational evidence and evidence from in vitro laboratory experimentation shows us that the spike protein strongly interacts and impedes with key tumor suppressor proteins that repair DNA damage. And as I put there, there's no evidence that that 2P mutation, which was known from MERS, that Pfizer and Moderna applied, and AstraZeneca doesn't have it, that that makes spike any safer. And if it really did, well, how can we use AstraZeneca then? Well, here's the top 10 known causes of death from the yellow card system. Look at how many of them I've associated with thrombosis. Pulmonary embolism, myocardial infarction, cerebrovascular accident, that's a stroke, thrombosis and cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, and we also see aneurysm, so the bulging of the blood vessels, cerebral hemorrhage. So the, the reaction, not only do we have high numbers, but it makes sense with the pathologies we just looked at. And what about this? A study, it's a preprint study, but it's a very serious study, suggests that the Pfizer injection reprograms the innate immune cells. The innate immune system is your frontline antiviral defense with things like natural killer cells, macrophages and monocytes. The natural killer cells have the ability to kill virally infected cells. What they found was that following the Pfizer injection, when they looked at the serum of donors, that there was a decreased response to toll-like receptors, which basically alert to classes of pathogens to elicit the innate immune response. That's your frontline response before you even get to, your, get to your adaptive immune system from vaccination. What they found is in the area of the recognition of the innate immune cells to bacterial lipids, there was a decreased response. The, so the response was less eff effective. And they found a statistically significant decreased response to TLR7 and 8, which is for the recognition of viral RNA. So that would contribute to your general fighting of RNA viruses. And you think about the technology, what you're trying to do, you're trying to get lipids and RNA material into your cells, and that's the effect suggested by a paper on the innate immune system. So again, I ask the question, is this really such miraculous technology, or is this extremely concerning? Well, that was safety. So you can make your mind up what you think of safety, because we're going to return in a moment to that risk-benefit analysis, and we're going to see whether it lines up on safety, on efficacy, on strategy and ethics. Now we move on to efficacy, and we'll keep this relatively simple. What you see here is a graph of cases. This is the most recent data where the UK government have provided us with a graph. What you see in black bars, that's vaccinated, and in the light gray bars is unvaccinated. What you see is in every age demographic above 30, higher rates of COVID-19 confirmed cases amongst vaccinated people than unvaccinated people. Now, the government have a whole bunch of caveats for this data, okay? So I'm not going to come here and argue and say, well, we know for certain that vaccinated people are contracting at higher rates. All I'm saying is, do you really have a 95% efficacy in the real world against the circulating Delta variant or not? I think this data strongly suggests it is nothing like that. And remember, that figure was on cases, was what they marketed to us. It was the marketing on cases. And why does cases matter? Well, we'll come to see when we talk about strategy and, and strategic viability, that if you have a pandemic with a novel virus and you do not stop the cases, you do not stop the infection and the transmission, you are liable to make the situation catastrophically worse, 
catastrophically worse. This is the most important part on efficacy for right now. This deploying of vaccines that do not stop transmission, that are leaky, is extremely dangerous. And we will talk about this in the next section. So let that speak for cases. But here's what we do. We judge everything on deaths. Now this is the government data. I take it at face value for the moment. We could, we could have caveats to it, but we'll take it at face value. And it suggests that vaccination is decreasing the number of people dying with a COVID-19 infection. And let that be what it is for the moment, according to their data. But I ask two massive questions. Firstly, what's the all-cause mortality? Surely it matters the overall picture of health amongst the vaccinated or the unvaccinated, right? That's the most important thing. Not whether you die with a COVID-19 infection. What's going on overall? So we're going to have to go back to the clinical trials because they won't give us that data. That's the only thing that matters right now is if we could see, right, everyone wants to identify vaccinated and unvaccinated. What I'd like to know is how many people are dying who are vaccinated and how many people are dying who are unvaccinated from all causes. And then we can really get to the bottom of it. We'll go back to clinical trials and we'll find that data out. So don't worry, we'll, we'll do that. Secondly, as I just mentioned, the long-term pandemic projections. We're even going to use evidence from the government themselves to indicate the long-term projection in terms of where things are heading. So that's all I'm going to say for the moment on efficacy. Yes, according to this data, it does decrease deaths with a COVID-19 infection, but there's far, far, far more to it than that. Now we're going to come on to strategic viability. What we mean by this is two questions I've defined. Number one, are the vaccines inducing immunological memory to protect against future variants of COVID-19? The reason I say this is the whole theory of vaccinology, right? You expose a person to a testing, a training uh, example of the virus through vaccination that should be safe and it should mount some kind of um, immune response with the antibodies and with the T cells that can be recalled upon later natural infection that will be protective. And it should make sense, not just for three months or six months, but for long time, exactly. And we're going to answer that question. And secondly, very simple question. By 2023, will we look back at 2021 and judge universal vaccination? We're vaccinating absolutely everybody, even people who don't want it, and children, to be wise in hindsight. Critical question. So we have to try to go into the future to answer that question. Well, here's another comparison we can make. Let's talk about acquired immunity from natural infection versus vaccination. So you can see here, I've listed three proteins, and all we normally hear about is the spike protein. But there's more going on. Remember that diagram I showed at the beginning? There's four surface proteins. Another one is nucleocapsid, which was considered by some to be a target antigen for the vaccine, if not the spike protein. Now, nucleocapsid is actually the main humoral immune response amongst naturally infected people. That means that those plasma antibodies mostly are targeting the nucleocapsid protein. It's not thought to be quite as um, beneficial as the anti-spike antibodies in terms of neutralization, but it is a very important part of the antibody response when you're naturally infected. Secondly, and most people may not have heard of this one, there's something called open reading frames, which are polyproteins, ORF1A, for example, and ORF1B. And what these are, is these are polyproteins, and they're actually the first proteins produced in the cell following infection. So a naturally infected person will mount a very strong T-cell response, which is the ability to kill the virally infected cell by recognition of ORF1A and ORF1B. 
But if you're vaccinated with a spike protein-based vaccine, you're not going to acquire that immunological memory. So that's another key uh, difference. And that's a very good target to have as a naturally infected person because it's the first thing that's created in the cell. So you have that recognition and you can kill the cell immediately. That's the first thing you want to stamp down on. So that's very important. And finally, even on the spike protein, so we say, well, both vaccinated and unvaccinated have exposure to the spike protein. If you're vaccinated today, you're absolutely getting the outdated spike protein from Wuhan from January 2020 when they just stuck it on the internet. They just stuck the genome on the internet and the manufacturers downloaded it. If you're naturally infected today, however, um, and you've avoided a symptomatic infection until now, maybe your innate immune system just cleared all the previous infections, and you're down now to natural infection, you will be exposed to the most up-to-date circulating variant, which is more likely to be more beneficial for some more um, period of time into the future. So that's another difference. But now, let's look at population-wide positive selection pressure. So now we're going to talk about some phenomenon that we're seeing at the population level. And remember that we didn't see uh, stopping of cases amongst the vaccinated from the UK data. So there's two key phenomenon. Now these two phenomena I'm going to talk about is absolutely there in the theories, the statistical theory of statistical epidemiology and quasi-species theory, which I cover in much more detail in my risk assessment. The first thing we see is increased infectivity. So you see here on the first point that the median and peak viral load of the Delta variant is 215 and 251 times respectively higher. So it's about 200 to 250 times more infectious than the variants we originally had in March and April 2020. And you see now with the current concern over new immune escape variants, it tends to be ones that have higher infectiousness. And secondly, immune escape selectivity. Fully vaccinated people disproportionately select for, upon infection, variants that are more resistant to antibodies and more tend towards immune escape. Because what happens is we're eliciting partially neutralizing antibodies against the original spike protein. So what's going to happen is you basically created a challenge for the virus. Those spike protein mutations that either have an absolute overall higher binding affinity for ACE2, just overall, will be able to overcome that vaccinal challenge. Or secondly, they may not have a higher overall binding affinity, but they just evade your vaccinal antibodies better. They will also have an advantage. So you see the arms race again. There's two ways of looking at it. Either higher binding affinity of spike for ACE2, or just a lower affinity of the vaccinal antibody for the spike protein. Either way you look at it, it's the same story. That's the theory before, going back 15, 20 years. There's the studies that demonstrate it, and that's exactly what we would expect to see. And the trajectory is immune escape. And I wrote this slide before we heard about the new Omricon variant. It's the same thing. There already was a variant, A30, that evades vaccinal antibodies with high efficiency. Okay, it may not have the infectiousness to dominate right now at the population level, but they already exist. These kind of mutations are not uncommon. All that has to happen is it takes off with the infectiousness to actually dominate at the population level. Secondly, genomic epidemiologists warn us of global positive selection pressure. So this yeah, these are people who really study the genomes and they study the variants in massive detail. They look at all the mutations. And here's just one paper I cite from in my risk assessment where they find an increase in the same kinds of positive selection pressure in the variants. And they, they describe how it was there in November 2020 and it increases in acceleration in 
February 2021, when we really have that high level of mass vaccination. And they warn in two areas of spike protein mutations in terms of increased transmissibility and spike protein mutations that tend towards immune escape. So these are the people studying the genomes. That's what they warn of. Thirdly, and this is actually from the UK government. This is from SAGE, an academic paper. They did an options paper, and it was all about the long-term evolution of COVID-19. And look at this. They talk about a scenario of current vaccine failure. Likelihood, almost certain. This is from SAGE. Impact, medium. Well, I agree with them on the current vaccine failure, likelihood, almost certain. I'd say certain. They say almost certain, I say certain. Impact, medium, no. They say medium because look at this. They say that there hasn't been evidence of something called antigenic sin. We're gonna cover that in a moment. And, that, and believe me, there has been because I cite that in my risk assessment. Which, so if, if, for more on that, please see that. I cite examples where we see the elicitation of previous antibodies for coronaviruses and influenza. So that, that, I don't even agree with that statement. But we're going to see why they, reason they say that it's a medium impact is because basically they say you can just update through revaccination the immune response following immune escape. And if you can't, then the impact isn't medium, it's catastrophic. Now you have an event that's almost certain with impact catastrophic. So that's the one place I disagree with Sage on there. And let's talk about that now, original antigenic sin. And look at the name of it. I mean, this is from an academic paper describing that it's a biblical reference, and it literally is a biblical reference to the imprinting of initial immunological memory. So I'll describe what it is now. It goes back to the work of Thomas Francis, an immunologist in 1960. He describes his observation that the child's first exposure to the virus of influenza strongly characterized all subsequent immune responses, regardless of subsequent infections or vaccination. So what did Thomas Francis um, recommend? A bit like an Einstein thought experiment. He said, if only we could have a perfect initial vaccine we gave the child before they ever met influenza, and it was so broad, it would cover everything. So it doesn't matter what happens with the mutations in influenza. That would be the ideal state. What have we done with COVID-19? We've locked everybody down, we've socially distanced, we've made all our immunocompromised people really afraid of ever meeting the virus, and everybody else for that matter, by the way. Okay, so maybe we're gonna give them the greatest vaccine ever. We took the most mutable surface protein, the spike protein, an outdated spike protein at that, even though we're still worried that right now this new variant might even be an immune escape variant with high enough infectiousness to dominate and we still haven't got a moratorium on this thing. Do we realize what we're doing? This is the number one most disgraceful, yeah. worst immunological, epidemiological strategy you could invent. Number one worst strategy. It is disgusting, absolutely. So I leave it to you to consider how we could be in this situation theologically. Theologically, I have my answer. So, if original antigenic sin is realized, then what would happen is, following immune escape variant dominating, which is the expectation the statistical epidemiologists would have in this scenario, that it would ultimately dominate. You could have, even if it doesn't have the infectiousness right now, the immune escape variant, ultimately, 
for a recombination event, for example, in someone, where two strains come together, you will acquire an immune escape variant with sufficient infectiousness to dominate at the population level. If you try to revaccinate by just updating the spike protein, if we have original antigenic sin, which I believe is almost certain, then it will simply, on that vaccination, it will just elicit and recall and reboost the original antibodies to the old spike protein that doesn't neutralize the virus. It doesn't stop viral infection. It gets elicited, yes. It gets recalled, yes. It might even bind to the spike protein. The affinity might be there, but it might not neutralize it anymore. It might not stop it going into the cells. So you still have cellular infection, okay? It could even enhance it potentially. Because the mutations were ones that were gaining an advantage for the virus were those that tended to prevent neutralization by the antibodies. That's the virus working out what to do and then dominating at the population level. So a grave threat, I call it here. This is on strategy. So remember, efficacy. Okay, maybe effective right now. Much bigger question is strategic viability. Now let's move on to ethics. A very important topic for a Christian audience. Well, let's start here then with the research and development, the manufacture and the testing of the COVID-19 vaccines. So this HEC-293 cell line was used at some place, in some part, for all of the current COVID-19 genetic vaccines. And what is it? Well, it's the product of a series of experiments on aborted fetuses in the 1970s from Netherlands. At the top, I quote from Dr. van der Epp from an FDA transcription. He was the one in charge of this experiment. And ultimately what we have is human embryonic kidney cells. And essentially, it comes from a single aborted female fetus from the Netherlands from the early 1970s. And in the transcription, he confirms that the fetus was completely normal, nothing was wrong. So, totally healthy little girl in the womb was aborted and was used at some point in the research and development of all the three vaccines. Now, this one issue alone is enough for many Christians who are strongly pro-life, that one issue on the screen is a red line for many, many Christians, that's it. Now, there may be others from their conscience who, who, who may not have the same moral view, but everybody has a right to know that. Everybody has a right to know everything we're talking about today. This is how we make decisions, because we know. As Christians, we make different decisions sometimes, but should we not know things? Should we not be entitled to? Is it loving to our Christian brothers if we don't tell them things which might affect their conscience had they had an opportunity to reflect on it? I think it's very important. And look at the bottom there. Before this cell line was established, 293 aborted fetal, fetal experiments. So how many other little developing lives in the wombs were snatched away to establish this cell line? And people may say, well, this is how it is in science. This is how it is in pharmaceuticals. Well, we're the people of God. If we look at something and say it doesn't meet the mark, even if we haven't made a stand before, we say, that's it. That's repentance. Isn't that what repentance is? You look at some, I didn't know this stuff before, now I do. So I look at it and I say, that's not for me. I need to expose that, because that's evil. Jesus Christ is totally pure and holy. So he can't be with something 
that's not holy and pure. That would be an affront to my Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And I think that's very important. Let's now have one of my favourite topics, a closer look at Pfizer's clinical trials. So, <clears throat> firstly, the headline figure we hear of relative risk reduction of 95%, what does it mean? Well, it means on cases. And we just saw the real case data in the real world. So it's not 95% anymore. And I don't think it ever truly was. How did they get that figure? Well, they took the number of people who were vaccinated, who developed a COVID-19 infection confirmed by PCR versus the unvaccinated, and they compared the two numbers and they said, well, you're 95% less likely to have, an, have a confirmed case if you've been vaccinated versus unvaccinated. But there wasn't a lot of COVID-19 cases in the clinical trials, apparently. So it actually was a kind of like a low overall risk, right? It was like there were, there were thousands of people in the clinical trial and there was, there was just a few cases. There just wasn't many. So what was the absolute risk reduction? Like how much overall are you less likely to get COVID-19? According to the clinical trial data, 0.7%. That's it. That's all their trials showed. But they just, they just, they, that wasn't good enough. They couldn't do their marketing. So they said, like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll just do it as a, as a relative ratio to give you 95%. But even at 95%, it's a bit questionable because their protocol records 3,410 suspected but not confirmed cases across both groups, the vaccinated and the placebo group. And nobody knows what to make of it because they don't really tell us enough. So if they tested all these cases, um, and there may be cases across both of them that were confirmed, um, maybe it wouldn't be 95%, even relative risk reduction then. So we'll, we'll never know, but, it's, but it's, worth, um, it's worth mentioning that caveat. Thirdly, in the British Medical Journal this month, there was a whistleblower from Ventabia, which is one of the research groups that work with Pfizer to help them with their uh, clinical trial and with the testing and with monitoring for adverse reactions. And the evidence submitted, and the BMJ ran an investigation on this, includes lack of timely follow-up of patients who experienced adverse events. Well, isn't this supposed to be about people's health? Doesn't that include the trial participants? If we don't closely monitor for adverse reactions in the trial participant, what's going to happen when we roll this thing out to the population? So I'd say that's pretty serious. I'd say until we get to the bottom of that, we should treat everything that Pfizer's been saying with a massive degree of skepticism. And secondly, what about this? Targeting of Ventavia staff reporting these type of problems. Does that sound familiar? The people that speak up? The brave people, like Dr. McCluskey, who speaks up and says it how it is, targeted. Does that sound familiar? You hear of people who experience adverse reactions, the victims themselves or their family members, targeted. Well, this doesn't sound like healthcare to me, or not the kind of healthcare that I want to be um, partaking in. And what about the last piece of evidence I have on the screen from Pfizer's Summary basis for regulatory action from the 8th of November with the FDA. All-cause mortality. Remember I said we'd come back to it. So during the clinical trials in the vaccinated group, 21 people died of all causes. Because remember, not as many people are dying of COVID-19 as, as other causes. Because COVID-19 is not the top killer. It's like down the list somewhere. 21 people died from the vaccinated group, 17 in the placebo group. Well... That doesn't tell me that it's doing much good for health. I mean, all they can tell me is cases, but we just looked at the real world case data and it doesn't tell a good story. So I did a quick calculation. I call it relative risk increase of vaccination just based on those numbers and you get 23.5%. So according to that data, you have a 23.5% relative risk increase of death. So I don't see why we can't say that number if they're gonna say this relative risk reduction which, with all the caveats they have there. So everybody should know that. 
before they take the injection. That's the relative risk increase according to their, their clinical data. And what about this? Now it gets very serious. The human cost of Pfizer Pharma fraud. Why do we use the word fraud? Because in 2009, Pfizer was fined $2.3 billion by the Department of Justice, the largest ever healthcare fraud um, recommendation or, or ruling from the Department of Justice in their history. And it included marketing fraud. So on the basis of that, I asked the question, how can people trust a company like that that have not fundamentally changed their ways? I, I leave it to you to judge what I'm about to tell you, whether you think this is fraud or not. I'll leave it to your judgment. Here we go. This girl you see at the bottom, her name is Maddie DeGaray. She was a 12-year-old girl in the Pfizer clinical trials. I'm going to read now from a statement that her mother made, Stephanie DeGaray, you see on the right-hand side, in June 2021 at the hearing of Senator Ron Johnson in America, where people were giving evidence about what's been happening. This is what the mother says. Upon receiving the second shot, which was 20th of January this year, Maddie immediately felt pain at the injection site, and over the next 24 hours, she developed severe abdominal and chest pain, and the way she described the chest pain, and I quote, it feels like my heart is being ripped out through my neck. She had painful electrical shocks down her neck and spine that forced her to walk hunched over. And there's a lot more to it than that. You see in that picture, that's a nasogastric tube on her face. She's in a wheelchair, you can see on the right-hand side. That's June 2021. She went downhill quickly. Her mother records she was a perfectly healthy, child before. So, have a think whether you think this could be vaccine related. Well, let's, let's read what Pfizer had to say. So remember, this happened in January 2021. In March, Pfizer announced positive top-line results of pivotal COVID-19 vaccine study in adolescents. In their, in their press briefing, they say it was well tolerated. Does that look well tolerated to you? Secondly, in the New England Journal of Medicine in July 2021, after the, this um, hearings even happened, they record that there were few serious adverse events and none were considered by the investigators to have been vaccine related. Is this genuine public health risk management anymore or is this something else? Right. And what about this? And this is an interesting topic. My freedom of information request. So due to irregularities in the FDA filings for Pfizer and their so-called fully approved version, Commonati, I issued a freedom of information request to the MHRA. All I asked for, very simple, I said, give me the exact quantity of water for injection in the pre-dilution vial, the post-dilution vial, and the administered dose. Because there's irregularities in the FDA. So I said, oh, and finally I said to MHRA, go and confirm what the FDA have said. I knew that would be an interesting question for them to answer. So what did they do? Well, they didn't, they didn't answer my question, but they provided a table, 3.2 P11, description and composition of the drug product. You can see on the screen how much they're letting us know. <laughs> of the publicly known ingredients, they're not, at this point from this document, giving the quantities. Now, they claim that they have the quantities um, in some of their documentation. But when I asked them on this, they said that the full quantitative, didn't say qualitative, quantitative composition of each COVID-19 vaccine is exempt under Freedom of Information Act exemptions. 
So we're being bullied and coerced and threatened, and so are our children, to take this stuff. They won't tell us the quantities, not just the list of ingredients, the quantity. Secondly, what about the lower seven rows of the table? You see seven fully redacted rows. Now, they may claim these are manufacturing ingredients, and they don't make their way into the final product. Well, what can we say about that? I mean, just think back to Johnson & Johnson, who make the Janssen vaccine. Baby powder, talcum powder, how hard is it to clean it properly? If anyone knows the story of them, you know that's a, that should have been a relatively simple process. So what we're looking at here is supply chain risk. As a researcher, I don't know if something there is extremely carcinogenic and it hasn't been removed properly. I don't know if something's ethically unacceptable to a Christian audience. I have no idea. Since I don't know, I have to say it shouldn't be trusted at all. No trust until we prove everything. That is the current state of um, the disclosure. So that's going to the ICO in the coming days. Of course, this has gone to various legal teams in Northern Ireland and to the PSNI as well. So we're ready to return to our Venn diagram and to make our decision on these experimental genetic vaccines. We looked at safety and we saw pathologies. We saw unknown risks from the novel lipids. We've seen data on the adverse reactions. It's unsafe, period. Efficacy. Well, if we're just judging it on you get some neutralizing antibodies to an out-of-date spike protein and it prevents some severe disease for, not, you know, for some people. Yes, there is some efficacy, if that's how you define efficacy. But I put it half in and I put it half out. Strategy. Absolutely number one worst strategy you could devise bar none. Absolutely abysmal. It seems to me intentionally so as well, intentionally so. Against the theory of immunology, against the theory of epidemiology, categorically. And fourth, ethics. Again, unthinkably bad, the monitoring for adverse reactions in the clinical trials and the HEC 293 issue, I think alone is extremely significant and for many is an absolute red line in and of itself without looking any further. That's where I put it. A vaccine deployed at scale absolutely must be in all four, not half in the efficacy and half out. It needs to be right in the center of that diagram. We're nowhere near that. So my ruling, my decision, if I was in the JCVI's position, this is fundamentally dangerous, not fit for human consumption, much less is it appropriate for people to be coerced to take it. Obviously, I have far more evidence in my risk assessment, 211 AMA-style references across toxicology, molecular biology, virology, immunology, and molecular, genomic, and statistical epidemiology. Of course, everything we have goes to the head teachers, it goes to the PSNI, it goes everywhere it needs to go to the legal teams. We know that we would hold a debate today and we will be confident on this side, we would prove the material harm and if we could get the parents to hear what we have to say, they would never contemplate letting their children take it. So we therefore are being held down by a system that is oppressing us from speaking out. I ask you to consider, when you look at the picture of Maddie de Garay, how many children like her will there be in Northern Ireland because we didn't speak up and because we didn't alert people to the danger. So I consider this to be a Christian duty. 
Because it says in the word of God, if anyone harms a child, it's better for him if a millstone were put around his neck and he went into the deepest sea. What we're doing here is we're exposing the unfruitful works of darkness. This is just very simple theology. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We know this is a dangerous world, so we expose the unfruitful works of darkness and we protect the innocent. We protect the unborn life and we protect those who may not have knowledge of these things. And thirdly, and sorry, finally I say, it, that's just the general decision that I would make. But for children, it's even more unthinkable. It's unthinkable that anybody would try to deploy this to children. Children are very well set up to fight this virus. They have lower ACE2 nasal expression, so they're less likely to get so much infection in the first place um, in, the, in the nasal passage. Secondly, they have excellent preactivated antiviral innate immunity, the epithelial cells in the upper airways. So that innate immune system I spoke about that can stamp down the virus before you even get to those acquired immune system is excellent for children. And thirdly, they have naive T cells, which means they can react much more quickly to new pathogens and kill virally infected cells through cytotoxic T cell activity. So the idea, after seeing the evidence we've seen, that we would consider children to take it is unthinkable. So this is an urgent matter. And finally, I would like to mention that my website is alltherisk.com. Please visit it and download a free copy of my report. I've also brought along today um, free copies of my report. Please help yourself to one. I've also brought free copies of Pfizer's redacted table 3.2 P11 so that you can show everyone how much we don't know about it and you can put pressure on the, our medical regulators and on others to disclose immediately the full quantitative composition of all the vaccines. Please also email me at jonathanfeisman at protonmail.com and we can start an immediate discussion on these things if you are so inclined. And let me just say this in closing. Those I work with who are my friends and co-laborers in this effort, who are on the front line issuing notices of liability and allegations of criminal conduct to the PSNI, I am with them 100%. I want to say this very clearly. We need to push in my opinion, for an immediate moratorium on these vaccines, especially for children. It should be immediately pulled with no delay. If we don't get, thank you. So what I would ask is please contact me if you are prepared to make that stand with me. If we don't get from Stormont an immediate moratorium on childhood vaccination, then we will have to get every leader and every pastor and every church who will stand with us and we will make a public statement calling for the immediate moratorium. Because let me tell you this, right now we have it for 12 to 15 year olds, but Pfizer have five to 12 year olds in America being injected, in Israel, they have trials for two years to five years. And they have trials coming for six months to two years. This is why we say an immediate moratorium now with no delay. If we don't get that in the coming days, we will, to a man, ask every pastor to stand with us and to call for the immediate moratorium. We, the people, will simply speak and we will make a statement to the politicians and to the country that we don't stand for this because that is what's going to happen if we don't put our foot down. We need an immediate moratorium and if we don't get it, we the people will stand up as one and demand it. 
So I'd like to say thank you very much for listening to my talk today.